2 Kings chapter 6 verse 8. What we're doing is going through Elijah and Elisha and we did the first part of this last time but some discussion came up that I wanted to continue. So I'm going to sort of back up and start again. So we're in 2 Kings 6 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he was used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So king of Israel has got a prophet that is warning him where the Syrians are going to be. And every time the Syrians set up to attack or to ambush, the king of Israel gets the word where they are and he can avoid the trap. Verse 11. And the mind of the king of Assyria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So what he figures is he's got a spy in the camp. Somebody's leaking information. And one of his servants said, None, my lord. O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I might send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and he came by night and surrounded the city. A couple of things here. Elijah is camped out in Dothan, which as I say is the place where Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. The king of Syria has found out where he is and has sent an army to surround the city and is going to capture this guy so that his plans don't continue to get leaked. So now down to verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this is sort of where we stopped last time. And one of the things that I said last time, which I want to say again, is Elisha seems to be operating on a different level than his servant is. Elijah knows that the chariots of fire are there and, and armies of the Lord are there and his servant doesn't. Notice that he doesn't say open my eyes. He says open the eyes of my servant so he can quit worrying. Which indicates to me that Elijah knows they're there. Now the thing we talked about last time is that's different than faith. So if I were you know, going to do something and I needed God's support, I would have faith that God would backstop me. But it is not the case that I typically see chariots of fire or angels or any of that kind of stuff. I just sort of know the Word of God, I know what God says, and I believe what God says, so I trust God, and that's what I call faith. Elijah doesn't seem to be operating on that basis. He's operating on sight. He's not taking any of this on faith, it's just like I can look out in the parking lot and I can see my cars out there. 
faith isn't involved. I can look out there and my car is still there. It was there a couple minutes ago and I looked at it, it's still there. Okay? So there's no faith involved here. I know my car is out there. Whereas if my car were parked that way so I couldn't see it through the window, I would say, well, I left my car there and I have faith that nobody stole it. So I have faith that my car is still there. Ten-year-old Ford in a church parking lot is probably pretty safe. But the point is, if I can't see it, I have faith that it's where I left it. Elijah is not operating on faith. He's operating in a different way. Moses seemed to have done the same thing. And where we went from there and where I want to go is what is a prophet and what's his job and why do they exist? In other words, why is there such a man in Israel that he gets up in the morning, looks out and says, oh, okay, chariots of fire, cool. Let's go back and get some breakfast. Not particularly surprised, not not excited, no, no worry whatsoever. Now, the third thing I wanted to talk about, which is the office and function of a prophet in Israel. Israel is unique among the nations in that the Israeli government system is set up by God. You remember when we were in Exodus 20 through 24, where you've got all of these laws about what do you do if somebody steals a sheep? What do you do if somebody leaves his money with you to keep? What do you do when you build a house? You put a pair of, you know, all these kinds of sort of nitty-gritty little laws. If I'm driving down 75th Street and there's a school zone down there, which there is, and the light's flashing, and there isn't a kid within 20 miles, and you can see for 20 miles in all directions and there's no kids, and I blast through there at 50 miles an hour, I'm breaking the law. Big whoop. Israel is committing sin. Do you see the difference? Because all of Israel's laws are given by God. And so if we were in the Israelite community and God says, thou shalt not go more than 20 miles an hour through this stretch during school hours. And I look around and I see there's nobody there and I just go blasting through at 50 miles an hour. I am in fact committing a sin as opposed to just breaking the law. Now, one of the things about human societies is they tend to corruption and the powerful tend to accumulate more power. Israel has got several unique mechanisms to prevent the unrestricted exercise of human power. The first thing is the smetta, the seventh year of forgiveness of debts. At the end of seven years, if you've messed your life up and you've gotten sold into slavery and you've gotten yourself way into debt and all that kind of stuff, every seven years that gets wiped out and you start over. So that's sort of thing one. Then, of course, we have Yovel, which is 50 years, where the land gets its people back because the land is the source of wealth. And if you've messed up and you've lost all your land, sold it, whatever, every 50 years you get that back. So that's thing two. Thing three is the prophet. What the prophet does is the prophet is God's mechanism for reaching into Israel and tapping the king on the shoulder and say, hey, O king, I'm not happy with what you're doing here. And we see it over and over again, and it's certainly in the life of Elijah and Elisha, and you'll see it in the case of Nathan. Prophets have no problem whatsoever walking right into the throne room and looking the king square in the eye and say, oh, hey, O king, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. 
that's God's mechanism because, see, God is the king, not the secular king. And so what the prophet then becomes is God's agent to make sure that the things that God wants to have done happen and that things don't get too far out of hand. The office of the prophet is so God can have a hand on his nation, Israel, and correct things as necessary. We know from history that that doesn't always work. And so what you have in the case of the northern kingdom is you have the prophet Isaiah who comes, and the prophet Isaiah basically says, you guys are going down because you haven't listened to the word of God, you haven't done what God said to, you have become corrupt, you have become idolaters, you have become violent, you're going down. And so the prophet in that case speaks, if you will, the doom of the nation when they finally get to the point that they won't self-correct. When we get to the southern kingdom that goes down, Jeremiah does the same thing. He goes in and he speaks and he says, Get used to learning Babylonian, because that's where you're going. And of course, the king arrests him, throws him in jail, tries to coerce him into changing his prophecy. But the prophet is God's way of injecting correction into Israel, and the way they do it, of course, is by speech. So what Elijah is doing here is he is operating, as I am reasonably sure he is normally want to operate, just like Moses you know, went up and did lunch with God. And he came down and his face shines. Moses was not operating on faith. Moses was operating on trust, but trust of a different character than the trust we operate on. I operate on trust of God, and I'm marginally good at it some days, but I'm just following directions. Moses and Elijah and Elijah are having conversation with God and they say, this is what I want you to do now. Oh, fine. Cool. I'll go do that. Whereas I have to read the scripture and say, all right, now what scripture applies to this situation? And there's always the possibility I grabbed the wrong scripture. And there's always the possibility that I misinterpret it and all that kind of stuff. These guys don't have that problem. So now, let's pick it up at 15, the first paragraph. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elijah. And Elijah said to them, this is not the way. These are not the droids you seek. That's exactly what's going on, okay? So Elijah said, this is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Notice that everything here happens on the word of Elijah. It's God's power, but Elijah is deciding what's happening. I suspect that Elisha could have said, Oh Lord, need a little fire from heaven here. And you'd have had grease spots all around where the chariots and the horses were. Because remember, that's what Elijah did when the king sent 
the company of troops to arrest him. He says, hmm, if I'm a man of God, fire's going to come down from heaven. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes the 50. Elijah, I believe, could have done that also. And what we'll see is why he is doing what he's doing now instead of that. Because there's a purpose to this. And it goes back to a prophecy of Elijah's. And it's in 1 Kings 19. So the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Yehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Three things. Of those three things, only one gets accomplished. The only thing that happens is Elisha gets anointed to replace him. The one with Hanamiel and Yehu does not happen. That's going to happen under Elisha. And what's going to happen next is Elisha is going to anoint him, and he's also going to anoint Yehu. What does that tell you? What it tells me is those two prophets are interchangeable in God's sight. So the instruction that got given to the person in the body of Elijah isn't actually accomplished until Elisha does it at the proper time. What does Yeshua say when they ask him about Elijah? Yeshua said, if you had accepted him, John the Baptist would have been Elijah. So what I'm suggesting to you here is the instructions got given to Elijah. He carried out one of the three. The two that are still hanging are going to be carried out by Elisha. That office, that mantle, if you will, passed from Elijah to Elisha, and it was hovering over John, and had the people accepted him, the mantle of Elijah would have fallen on John, and he would have continued. The human flesh changes, but the instructions don't. And oh, by the way, one of the characteristics is they're all grumpy. And think about that for a minute. And what's happened is you have been plucked out of the mainstream of humanity. And you are able to see things that nobody else can see. That has got to be a terrifying position to be in. And a very lonely one, by the way. So anyway, the point is, he doesn't kill these guys. He blinds them. Because he has got something that has to happen next. And killing them won't accomplish what is going to happen next. So now we're all the way down to verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Now this is sort of like you walk into the enemy fortress and your invisibility cloak malfunctions. 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, My father, Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? So he's brought them in the capital city of Israel, where the king has got his guards and everything else, and all of a sudden these Syrians pop up. And so the king says, Woohoo! Want me to slaughter them, boss? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? In other words, you've taken them captive, you need to take care of them, Geneva Convention kind of stuff. Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. 
So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids against the land of Israel. And now down to verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So the deal here is, I've got a good chunk of the army of Syria. They're in the middle of the camp. I can wipe these skunks out. No, no, don't do that. You know, give them food and water and send them home. So now in the next vignette, they're all back with the king of Syria. But wait a minute. I should have killed all those guys when they were here the first time. And now they're back fighting me again. You understand what's going on? So afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up again and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter part of the dove's dung for five shekels of silver. I have no idea what dove's dung is used for. Just don't know. Don't want to find out. 26. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on a wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? So one of his subjects yells up to him, I need help. He's saying, I don't have anything from the threshing floor or the wine. I don't have wine and I don't have bread, basically. So how can I help him? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, The woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. She's welched on the deal. We were to have two roast kids and only had one. Verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth on his body. So the king is wearing sackcloth, which is a sign of humility and mourning. This little vignette with the two sons is by way of describing the seriousness of the situation. Okay, in other words, the, the famine is so bad that people are resorting to slaughtering and eating their children. So now down to verse 31. And he said, May God do so to me and more, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Notice that he is going to go out and take out Elisha. The reason he's going after Elisha is because he had the Syrian army in his hands, and Elijah made him send them back. So that's why he's chapped with Elisha. 32. Elijah was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. It's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. So Elisha, again, sees what's happening, sees that this guy is coming, he refers to the king as a murderer, and says, grab the messenger when he gets there. 33. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, the trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So what he's saying is the famine in the, in the besieging army is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I think that means, why should I serve God if he's doing this to me? But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, 
two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. We started off this vignette with the price of a donkey's head. Donkeys are not kosher. So the fact that they are reduced to eating donkeys, and oh, by the way, the head, which is probably not the most desirable cut of donkey, is expensive. So all of this is by way of saying how severe the famine is. And what the man of God says is this time tomorrow, there's going to be such abundance that two seas of barley is going to go for a shekel. Whereas before you had a donkey's head was 80 shekels of silver. So 80 shekels is a lot of silver. And you're spending that for something that is not kosher. And as I said before, that's probably not prime cut of donkey. The idea is the famine is so severe that that's what it costs for something that you would not normally eat and you're glad to have it at that price. And what the man of God is saying is this time tomorrow the famine is going to be broken. So two seas of barley, which God knows how much you would sell for if you could get it, will only be a shekel. And of course the captain of the guard says, yeah, right. And so Elisha looks at him and says, it's going to happen tomorrow and you ain't going to share it. Again, grumpy. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they will kill us, we shall but die. So they're saying, we got three choices that we can see. One, we can go in the city and starve with everybody else. Two, we can sit here and starve with everybody else. Or three, we can go to the camp of the Syrians where we know there's food and maybe we won't die. Verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come against us. In other words, Somehow they've got a message to the Hittites and to the Egyptians and have hired them to come and relieve the siege. And again, God does this a fair amount. There are several cases where God panics an army like this with nothing. Gideon does it, for example. Verse 7, So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Oh, by the way, I neglected to mention something you all know. Lepers are not allowed in town. Remember, the deal with a leper is they're outside of the gate. So the town is sealed off and besieged because of the Syrian army. But the lepers can't go in because they're lepers, and so they're sort of stuck in this area between the Syrian army and the town, which is sort of why they came up with their three choices. Verse 9, Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. And I love this. I mean, you can just sort of see this in the movie. 
running around grabbing stuff and hiding it and, and eating and all that kind of stuff. Oh, we're not doing right. <laughs> After they got loot stashed all over the place and their tummies are nice and oh, we're not doing right. <laughs> Something that you could see an old black and white movie doing. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied in the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servant, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city we will take them alive and get into the city. So what he thinks is they've abandoned their camp, they've pulled back, they're in an attack position around, and when Israel comes out and goes into the camp, they're going to follow. Verse 13. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us sin and see. So, okay, we got some horses left over. Let's take five of them and, and go check it out without risking the whole army. 14. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste, and the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of flour was sold for a shekel, two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. Once it's known that the Syrians are gone and there's food and loot to be had, the king put his captain of the guards on the gate to control things. Word got out that food and loot and all that stuff is there, so they basically rushed through it, trampled this guy or you know, slammed him between the gate and the wall or something, but killed him in the process. But I think his job there was to control this so that it didn't turn into the riot that it turned out to be. 18. When the man of God had said to the king, two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, can such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, you shall not eat of it. So it happened to him, for the people trampled him at the gate, and he died. So let's go to the first six verses of chapter 8, and then we can pick up Hazael next time. And remember, Hazael is the one that Elijah was instructed to anoint, king of Syria. We don't have time to get into that tonight, but let's go ahead and read the first six verses of chapter 8, so we'll be spring-loaded and ready to go there. Now Elijah had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. This is the Shunammite woman, and remember the Shunammite woman is from a family of some wealth. They have enough wealth, remember, because they build a place for the man of God to stay when he comes by. Her husband owns land because he's got 
reapers and so forth working for him. So the Shunammite is not in the same category as the widow who lost her husband and was expecting the creditors to come and take her sons into slavery. The Shunammite is well off. So basically what he's saying to her is, there's going to be a seven-year famine here. You need to pick up and go somewhere else while the famine is going on. She certainly has the wherewithal to do it. It's not the case that she's destitute. Verse 2. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elijah has done. So remember Gehazi is the guy that when Naaman the Syrian general with leprosy came down and got cleansed of leprosy, one of the things he did is he brought a lot of wealth that he was planning on depositing or giving to the man of God as an offering, if you will, for his healing. The man of God says, no, don't want it. Gehazi, as soon as the master's back was turned, beat feet, followed the guy and says, my master has changed his mind because we have had some sons of the prophets show up unexpectedly and they need some stuff, so give me some stuff for them. And he takes the stuff and Elijah, of course, knows about it and turns him into a leper. So he's a leper and I'm not sure why he's talking to the king, but he is. And so what he's doing is he is telling the king about Elisha. And this just occurred to me, I hadn't thought of this before, why do you suppose he's doing that? The king's mad. And so what he's done is he has gotten this disgruntled servant who has been turned into a leper, and he said, alright, I want to know everything about this Elisha guy. Because I think the thing in his mind is, i got to find this guy and i got to neutralize him. Because he's a loose cannon. So I think that's what's going on, is you have the king, who is unhappy with Elisha, pumping information out of a disgruntled servant. Four and a half. Tell me all the great things that Elijah has done. And while he was telling the king how Elijah had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman. And here is her son, whom Elijah restored to life. In other words, I just told you this story, and, oh, by the way, there she is, there's the witness. And you can ask her yourself. Verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. And I'm not sure what his motivation is, but I will speculate. If I'm right... And what's going on is the king is pumping the disgruntled servant for information. What he has just done is got independent confirmation. And so what he's doing is rewarding her for confirming what the servant had said. But that's a guess on my part. Because, first off, a Shunammite is not an Israelite. So for her to leave, duck out from under the famine show back up seven years later when the famine is over and say, oh, by the way, I want my land, to get not only the land, but the value of the produce that that land would have produced for seven years is very generous. So I'm assuming it has something to do with the fact that her evidence corroborates what Gehazi said, but that's a guess on my part. 
through Gehazi, the king knows that this woman is a dear friend of Elijah's, and what he's doing is currying favor. All right, I'm done. Somebody want to close in prayer?